You're listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim. To find out more, go to calvaryanaheim.org. And now, here's Pastor James. Verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And so this is a day of celebration for the Philistines. The king of their enemy has been destroyed and they're going to make sure that they spread this good news and that they send a message to the Israelites that this is what happens to people who mess with us and with our God because our God is better. And so they cut off his head and take his armor and it's a horrible sad thing and and the people celebrate the death of Saul and his sons. Verse 10, then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so when these valiant men of Jabesh Gilead hear of what has happened to Saul and his sons and how they are fastened to the wall of a city that's up on a hill, and this is horrible for them, right? This is uh, sacrilege for them to be hanging up there, mutilated, naked in Jewish culture. That's horrible, horrible in public for all to see and headless. And so they are appalled at this and they travel all night, 15 to 20 miles, to steal away their bodies so that they can give them a proper burial. Now why are they doing this? They're doing this because of gratitude. Because it was Jabesh Gilead who were threatened by the Ammonites And then Saul was out in the fields and attending his sheep and whatnot. And Saul had been anointed as king, but just waiting on the Lord for next move. And then the word comes to him that the Ammonites have come against Jabesh Gilead and have said, if you don't surrender to us, we'll kill you. If you surrender to us, we're going to poke out your right eye and you're going to serve us for the rest of your lives. And so they were in a desperate situation. They cried out. They sent word for help. And when Saul got the word, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gathered an army and he rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead against the Ammonites. And they have never forgotten that. That's a part of their history that Saul, no matter what else he became later, would always be their hero and their Christ figure, if you will, their savior from that. And so these men, in gratitude, 
went and served the bodies to give them a proper burial. And, and this should be our attitude, our response to Jesus, who saved us from hell, is to serve the Lord, even when it means marching 15 or 20 miles all night long, you know. Gratitude, gratitude towards the Lord. Now he was, his bone, they burned the flesh off because, you know, in Jewish tradition, you bury the bodies. But if the bodies are unrecognizable and you can't treat them with the spices and things, then you would burn the flesh off and they bury the bones. So the bones were buried under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh Gilead. Now this was the same kind of tree that Saul was sitting under when he had his men gathered around him and he had his spear in his hand and he was raging because David had escaped and gotten away. And then this is when Doag, the Edomite, ratted out the priests of Nob. And so the priests were brought to Saul and he commanded them killed. And so his servants wouldn't do it except for Doag the Edomite who killed 85 of them in their linen robes and then went and killed the entire town of Nob, all the people. And so it's justice, it's poetic justice that Saul would be buried under a tamarisk tree. And there's this connection then from his evil acts to his punishment, his demise that he never repented from. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, 1 Chronicles chapter 10 is a word-for-word rendering of this same chapter with the addition of the following at the end. 1 Chronicles 10, 13 says, so Saul died of, um, for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, his disobedience. Remember, he built a monument to himself. He put himself on the throne above God. It goes on to say, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. Remember, he disobeyed God and didn't wipe out the Amalekites as he was supposed to, but spared the choicest of the spoils and the king presumably for a ransom or just because he liked him. In verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Now we're told earlier in the scripture that he inquired of the Lord but didn't hear from God. And now we're told that he, he did not inquire of the Lord. Well, there's two different Hebrew words at work here. The one in this scripture is deresh, which means seek with care. The other word, for inquire is sha'al, which means to ask or request. And so he asked of the Lord, he requested of God, but he didn't seek an answer from God with care. And so God did not respond to his request. And that's when he sought an answer from the witch of Endor. And so it says he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. Whoa. God killed him, simple as that, and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And that's it. That's why. Because he disobeyed God, and he sinned against the Lord. 
And for years and years and years, as he had opportunities to repent and showed signs of repentance, but then never actually did it. Well, the hammer has now fallen. The reckoning has come. And this is his end. There on Mount Gilboa. The word Gilboa means swollen heap. That's how I picture Saul after he gets hit with the arrows and stabbed and falls on his own sword. He just becomes like the mountain he's dying on, a swollen heap. He's introduced as a tall, handsome man with all the characteristics of a mighty ruler. The Holy Spirit empowers him to rescue the people of Jabesh-Gilead from being maimed and enslaved by the Ammonites, then firmly establishes him as king of Israel. His future is his to lose, and he does. Why? It's called sin nature, friends. It's the depravity of human beings. And I don't know about you, but as I read through as we've been studying through this, I can relate to Saul and go, yeah, I've, I've been prideful like that. Ooh, yeah, I've hardened my heart like that. I've put myself on the throne. I've sought my own glory from time to time. It's because we all have sin nature in us. But Saul persisted in his sin and he would not repent And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the death is gruesome. And God's making a point here, friends. He's saying that sin is intolerable. That sin, disobedience against God, taking him off the throne, putting ourselves on, is worthy of a gruesome, horrible, disgusting death that is shameful and that is violent. It's a picture of hell, if you will. And this is what all of us deserve. But this gruesome demise of Saul shows us why Jesus had to do what he did on the cross for us. Because we think of Saul's death and how he was shamed and brutalized. And we think of Jesus and how he was wounded for our transgressions. He was beaten beyond recognition with that crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and the nail in his feet and the cat of nine tails and the crown on his head and the spear that pierced his side and the blood and the water ran out. And he did it for us. That's what we deserved. But we trust him for salvation, don't we? And we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, for making me clean, for making me whole, for taking the punishment that I deserve on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. And so this is the justice of God with King Saul. God is being just with him. And God's justice was poured out on Jesus for us. So Saul's choices had a negative impact on himself on his family, on his whole army and his people. But David would do much better than Saul did. As we've already seen, would be an imperfect foreshadowing of the perfect king to come, King Jesus. 
You know, there's a scripture in Ezekiel. We're going to, we're going to, you guys can turn over there to Ezekiel chapter 34. And God is not pleased with irresponsible fleshy shepherds. But there's good news. One day, he's going to shepherd his own people, Israel, back to himself. And this is a beautiful passage of scripture that I want to read through with you. It's long, so I'm going to forewarn you that if you don't open your Bible to follow along, you might fall asleep. So you need to open your Bible, electronic or otherwise, turn to Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel 34, and I encourage you to actively read along as I read this beautiful description here, uh, number one of, you know, the shepherds that have failed but the good shepherd, the good shepherd who is God himself and God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So we're in Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, The backdrop is this, that hundreds of years have gone by. The people of Israel have had some good times and bad times, but mostly bad times. And finally, God's judgment has had to come. And the Babylonians have come in and taken them away. And it says here in Ezekiel 34, verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This would be both the civil and spiritual leaders of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Hey, shouldn't the leaders be taking care of the people? What are the leaders doing running off and and chasing David, the bandit, when the leaders should be caring for the people? And then verse 3, it says, You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty, you have ruled them. And Jesus was the opposite of this, wasn't he? Jesus went after the lost. Jesus was the good shepherd, the good leader. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Verse 6, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. We need to do that. We need to search for the lost. We need to be looking for the lost sheep, just like Jesus did. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. Human government is going to fail 
because of sinful, selfish leaders. That's what's going to happen in the end. And Jesus is going to come back and show us how it's done. And it's going to be amazing. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. You see, God is calling the sheep his. It's his flock. Israel's his people. We are God's people. And God, we're being told here, at a future time, was going to take what was scattered, children of Israel, and he's going to bring them back, his flock. He's going to do the opposite of what these bad shepherds did, letting the flock get scattered, bring them back. This started uh, with the Zionist movement in, in the late 1800s. And then Israel became their own nation again in 1948. And this process is continuing today as God continues to bring Jewish people from all over the world back into the land. And this will continue until Jesus comes back and finishes the job by miraculously bringing all the people back into the land. It will be at that time that he will establish his kingdom here on the earth and we're told, it, well, there's an interesting comment here that we're going to get to. So I'll just keep reading. It says in verse 13, And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Oh man, this is, this is heaven here, guys. This is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ as God's people are there in Israel and he is lavishing them with blessings. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Verse 17, And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk of the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with your feet? And so not just the shepherds, but there are sheep among them that are spoiling the other sheep and messing it up for others and making it difficult to exist as part of the flock. Can we relate to that? Sometimes it's just difficult being here, isn't it? But there's going to come a day when God's coming back. Jesus will be here. And it's going to be a kingdom without end. And our hearts are going to rejoice and our hearts can rejoice even now, even today, in anticipation and expectation of this day to come. And as we enjoy moments of it, heaven is going to be amazing. Verse 19, and as for my flock, they eat what you have 
trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, this is an interesting comment right here because, uh, you know, most Bible scholars would say, well, this is referring to Jesus, who's the son of David. But it doesn't actually say that specifically. It says David. And so some Bible scholars believe that Jesus will rule the world. He's ruling the earth, right? The whole earth is his. And we're going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ on the earth. And so they believe that David then, David himself, will be given the land of Israel as part of his heavenly possession during this time. Interesting to think about and speculate on, isn't it? Verse 24, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, and they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. No more the Philistines coming and chasing them off in fear slaughtering their army. Verse 29, I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. Verse 31, you are my flock. The flock of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Isn't that exciting? Oh my goodness gracious. And so Saul here, he's a man. He's a man of flesh, and he's a man who lived for the flesh. But we have the promise of a heavenly king who's going to establish a heavenly kingdom here on this earth, and it is going to be glorious. And so one last lesson here is that Saul started well, but didn't finish well. And it's the finish that matters. And so maybe you're here tonight, and you've had a bad run. Well, guess what? You're still breathing. You're still on this earth alive. And today's a new day, and today's a new start. And it's not too late to finish well. And so we're going to end with these two last scriptures, 2 Timothy 4, 6. The Apostle Paul says, For I am already being poured out 
as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think of Chuck Smith. I think of Billy Graham with the Lord today as we speak. I think of Mark Bove, my dad, who went home with honors. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight. This is for all of us right now. Fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Have you confessed the good confession, the confession of your Lord Jesus Christ among many witnesses? The good confession of faith publicly. Fight the good fight, friends, and fight it to the end. God's with you. He sent his Holy Spirit, the Paracletos, to come alongside to be our help so that we can finish well. Not like Saul, but like David and like Samuel. You've been listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim in Anaheim, California. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to visit. Check out calvaryanaheim.org for location, service times, and more. We'd love to hear from you. To let us know how God has touched your life through this program or to submit a prayer request, simply go to calvaryanaheim.org and scroll down to the Get in Touch form at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to listen again next time for another edition of Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Anaheim.